hello, and welcome to Conflict Theory, the only podcast throwing bricks through the Overton window. No, you don't like that one, Chloe? No, you're not hurting me at all, please. <laughs> Brandy likes it. I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the new introduction. That's canon now. So, going, we won't need windows. <laughs> <laughs> so with me today, I got Chloe Wright, Brandy Crines, and Philip, I forgot your last name. Ord, O-R-D. Philip Ord, that's right. And we've, we've assembled this very important summit to discuss uh, SCOTUS, the Supreme Court. It's obviously been in the news recently, but first thing I'd like to do is just sort of throw down some really bad history of it, uh, get into some really contemporary news of it, miss a lot of important things, and add details most people would think don't really matter. So this is your explainer section, after which we're going to do some soapboxes. So the Supreme Court, it is the branch of government that is responsible for interpreting constitutional the Constitution, and figuring out whether or not the laws are legal, more or less. It usually consists of nine members. This hasn't always been the case. Sometimes we've added some, and right now, they only have eight members uh, awaiting a nomination, uh, awaiting a confirmation. Uh, but that number can change if Congress decides to increase or decrease the number of justices. The the uh, way that the justices are chosen is the president appoints somebody. They'll be like, this is a good judge. And then the Senate will be like, yeah, we agree. It is a good judge. And then we have a new Supreme Court justice. This occurs after someone either dies or retires. The Supreme Court is a weirdly beloved institution in the United States. It usually has a very high approval rating compared to the other branches of government. Uh, sometimes as high as 60%, uh, never really dropping below 50. Uh, it's a fairly well-liked branch of the government. The, uh, there were two behemoths on the Supreme Court. We're going to get back into some history now. Uh, in recent history, there, the, the Republican sweetheart was Justice Antonin Scalia, and he passed away in 2016. Uh, while Barack Obama was president. In response to this, the Republicans enforced what they called the Biden rule, which is that they will not create a new, or they will not appoint a new justice in an election year. And it was, it was a big, sad fight as uh, Obama tried to get his candidate through, but it didn't really pan out. The Republicans blocked it. Then... Four years later, we're in not even the exact same situation, a more extreme version of that exact same situation where a uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away just months before the election. And uh, the Democrats, this time, they suggested using the Biden rule not to do it in the in a election year. But now the Republicans are in charge of the Senate and they are disagreeing with that. And they're, they're going back on their word. They're gonna push through a new justice, even though four years ago, they refused to do it because they said it was undemocratic. 
So it's a weird political time around the Supreme Court we're in. But now I want to get into this sort of makeup a little bit before I leave us to the soapboxes. So, so far there have been 114 Supreme Court justices. Of them, 110 of them were men. The mass majority of them were Protestant uh, and four women. There's been one Hispanic, uh, one, uh, oh, two black individuals, uh, four, and the rest were white. So three minorities, people of color, and the rest were, were white guys and four women. And uh, so looking at the current demographics, it's actually made a really weird, possibly significant shift uh, in recent history. The mass majority of the 114 Supreme Court justices have all been Protestant, but as of right now, there are no Protestants on the Supreme Court. It consists of six Catholics and uh, two Jews. No Protestants. Uh, right now, there is one woman on the Supreme Court and two men that have been accused of sexual harassment. So one woman, two predators. That sounds unequal. The, and the biggest concern probably going into this election is that we're, if uh, Amy Coney Barrett gets confirmed, which it's likely that she's going to, there's going to be a 6-3 split on the Supreme Court. There's going to be what is likely six uh, uh, conservatives and only three uh, liberal justices on the Supreme Court. And that's been a huge concern for many on the left. Things that are at risk are things like the Affordable Care Act, which is coming up. The Affordable Care Act uh, is, is something that was only passed on a 5-4 decision uh, back under Obama. And with the supermajority of conservatives on the Supreme Court, that could be declared unconstitutional. Other concerns are Roe versus Wade. You've got six conservatives and six of the members on the Supreme Court are Catholic and that or seven, it'll be seven members of the Supreme Court are Catholic. Like th these, these are issues about whether or not uh, Roe v. Wade, whether that's going to become up for grabs again. So these are some major concerns of the Supreme Court. So I guess the question I have for my soapboxers today is, is the Supreme Court broken? Like historically it's been really well liked, but it's very, very political right now. And it's almost feels like the Supreme Court was designed not to be subject to like a two party system, but that's what we have. But maybe the Supreme Court is well designed enough that it doesn't matter if we have a two party system. That, these are just some of my questions. So is it broken? Uh, do we need to fix it? Uh, we'll start, let's start with Brandy. Okay, so um, I would say yes, it is broken. Um, a little bit of what has happened with this coming up with the court packing. They want to add more justices if Biden wins um, so that they can have a more balance. As you said, it'll be a 6-3 split and they want to add two more because it has to be uneven um, to that to make us have what would that be? the 11 Supreme Court justices. Um, and with this kind of election, though, you would notice uh, it would be important to both sides if 
what the Supreme Court looked like because it is very possible that this election could come down to a Supreme Court decision. Um, so having a bunch of Republicans in there to choose that for the Republicans is probably something they want and something Democrats don't want. Um, let's see. So both sides have been... Um, both sides have been guilty of doing these things that they do, uh, holding up the nominees, filibustering them, or slow walking them through the process so that they don't have to have them at a certain time for a certain judgment or whatever they're going to do. Um, the court packing itself, it probably won't do any good. All it does is make it off balance to one or the other. And like Paul said, it was never meant to be this side or the other. It was supposed to be people who are best for the job who could be done bipartisan, have look at things from both sides and actually make a good ruling. ruling. And it wasn't actually until 1803 that the Supreme Court was even able to be a judicial review, but they actually nominated themselves to do that in the Madison versus Mulberry. Some people have been saying there are other ways that we could fix it. Um, Senator Elizabeth Warren suggested bringing just from the lower courts would depoliticize de the court um, because now you no longer find someone that's good for the job like I was saying they look for the youngest and most ideological person for what they want as president to do it the only option that I have seen that really looks like it could actually help is the 18-year term limit option I've seen thrown out there um, and that would be obviously 18 years for each justice um, and that would be every other year a new justice would be chosen. So nine, 18 years, every 18 years, we'd have a whole new Supreme Court, which I think is good because having people who have been in there since, let's see, 1991 is the earliest in there now. Um, they're completely different era and they don't have any, they're not here for us now. They're here for what they are here for. So I think that would be the best thing choices to get term limits in there. All right, thank you for that, Brandy. We can move on to Chloe now. Yeah, so I mean, it's always interesting when talking about the Supreme Court. Um, as Brandy put, the idea of the Supreme Court really comes down to the power of judicial review. They have some other powers, including like precedent setting and their opinions are considered pretty well regarded by the legal community. But what we really concern ourselves with is the 1803 decision, Marbury versus Madison, where the Supreme Court kind of established that they are basically the people who say, this is in accordance with the U.S. Constitution or this isn't in accordance with the U.S. Constitution when reviewing case law. This is incredibly influential because some of the more controversial decisions more recently, for example, the um, left wing of the American uh, political or political cognoscenti basically, um, really objected to the decision Citizens United, a decision that essentially stated that corporations are considered people for the purposes of things such as political donation, which has seen the overall net amount of money that influences any given political election, whether that be through donations of ad buys, whether that be through the creation of so-called super PACs, uh, large political action committees, which are created as individual entities under the Citizens United ruling to be able to place tremendous sums of money directly contributing to candidates' campaigns. It's something that defines a lot of American politics today, wherein the two-party system, more explicitly the idea that any given political party will have their candidate just have a necessarily larger platform than any third-party candidate could hope to accomplish, 
largely is based in things like that Citizens United ruling. So you can see how the court, the Supreme Court would have a tremendous amount of influence over like just basic political activity from kind of every level with the weight of their decisions. Now, it's, this is not the first time talking about, um, as Paul set up in kind of the primer, when uh, Neil Gorsuch ended up being appointed to the Supreme Court. Um, we, that, we, that was not the first time that the Senate has either messed around with the nomination procedure or decided to, in some cases, fully change the number of seats in order to motivate a political agenda. Um, currently, the Supreme Court has nine seats, and as Brandy mentioned, uh, one of the ideas being thrown around is the idea of expanding them. It actually had 10 seats before it had nine. In uh, 1863, the number rose to 10 because the party in power at the time wanted their presidential uh, president to be able to appoint an additional seat. Then in 1866, Congress passed the Judicial Circuits Act, which shrank the number of justices back down to seven. And it was specifically passed in motivation because at the time, President Andrew Johnson had tremendously bad relations with his Congress, both in the House and the Senate. And those two chambers did unite to try and curtail his power, Andrew Johnson, if you know your American history, being seen as a particularly powerful executive and someone who was trying to expand the responsibility of the executive branch even further. Um, with the Judicial, um, <clears throat> excuse me, with the Judicial Circuits Act, uh, which shrank the number of justices back down to seven. Uh, they then three years later in 1869 decided to raise the number right back up to nine because that Congress that was again still tremendously powerful wanted to again be able to appoint their justices. And it's basically stayed there ever since. In 1937, there was an effort to create more, um, to create a court that was more friendly towards the New Deal uh, under Franklin Roosevelt. He attempted to convince Congress to pass legislation that would allow a new justice to be added to the court for a total of up to 15 members for every justice over 70 who opted not to retire. Congress ultimately rejected this plan. So both the left and the right in the past have attempted to change the number of people on the Supreme Court. And it's important to note not only the weight of any given Supreme Court decision, but the weight that messing with these basic institutional structures can have. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that ultimately we should be looking at making changes again? Well, I suppose that depends on how you're on either side of the aisle. Does it mean we should leave well enough alone? Well, we can't really do that either because as Paul mentioned with Amy Coney Barrett, presumably being nominated, it would cause a massive shift where the conservative ideology that several of these justices have, for example, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett has explicitly written that she would quote, have an ethical obligation to have her Catholicism guide her decision-making. Now, less than 50%, much less than 50% of Americans are Catholic. Do you think that's a reasonable position for a Supreme Court justice to make? The Supreme Court's incredibly powerful. Their decisions, like the Dred Scott v. Sanford decision, are responsible for wide-reaching policies that can do things such as set the progress of African Americans, that particular decision in 1857, ruled that Afri Americans of African descent, whether free or a slave, were not American citizens and could not sue in federal court. It set the cause of African Americans back hundreds of years. Arguably, we're still recovering from the Dred Scott decision, and movements like the Black Lives Matter movement are still protesting policy enacted by the Supreme Court. It's incredibly important, and we know that more changes like that are coming. Just today, today being uh, the 5th of October that we're recording this, Justices Thomas and Alito, both currently on the court, issued large minority decisions indicating that they believe the landmark ruling in 2015 of Oberfell v. Hodges should be overturned. For those who don't know, Oberfell v. Hodges is what allowed same-sex couples to be afforded due process and equal protection under the 14th Amendment to be married. 
basic equality is very much something in the Supreme Court's hands right now. So this long explainer, mm -hmm. what I would end with would basically be asking you, should that be the case? Now, having a, a court that can settle legal disputes is something that most governments do need. But circuit courts don't have the ability to determine wide-reaching policy for years and years and years. In fact, when you look at the legalistic wing of the Canadian Supreme Court, or if you look at the High Court in Britain, you'll notice that they do not have the same political power, the same ability to set precedents, case law, the ability to have judicial review throughout the entire system of those nations. That's a unique to America. The, the Supreme Court of the United States is a uniquely political and a uniquely powerful entity among high courts across the world. So what I would say is it probably should be abolished, at least as we know it. That doesn't mean abolishing the ability for a court to make decisions on legal rulings. What it means is saying that ultimately judicial review, this idea that a group with lifetime appointments of some nine people who are appointed by politically elected figures, sometimes by small margins, such as the Electoral College victory of President Trump despite losing the popular vote, they probably shouldn't be the ones making our decisions that have this kind of politically wide-reaching view. So I would abolish judicial review were it my choice, and I would say that this particular court is not supreme, never was, and really never should have been, and we should try to return to that. All right, so we'll get some statements from Phil, then we'll take a break and discuss. Um, so uh, I did not do much research for this. I feel like this is more of a educational opportunity for me. Um, I did not know. I thought that was always the role of the Supreme Court was to decide if laws were constitutional or not. Uh, so I guess the judicial review thing kind of happened a little bit after the founding of the nation. Um, are there problems with the Supreme Court? I think some of the problems come from uh, the fact that it is politicized for left and right when I think people um, that are appointed to the Supreme Court should be pretty big uh, constitutionalists. Uh, I am very wary of, um, and this is coming from a non-practicing Catholic, uh, that kind of abandoned the faith a while ago, uh, that having um, having someone guided by religion uh, anywhere near the government, I think is creepy and abhorrent because we uh, are a secular nation. The people say we were a Christian nation. We never really were. There was no official religion. And I'm a firm believer of separation of church and state. Um, I think we could make some changes to the Supreme Court. The fact that um, I think there should be an age limit, you know, like I think people like getting into severe old age, you know, they run the risk of things like Alzheimer's and other diseases. So maybe the latest you can be on the Supreme Court is 80 years old. Uh, you know, that should be at least the, you know, that's still pretty old or even 75, and I think maybe we could uh, have term limits to um, 18 years uh, only. So there is not an appointment for life because I think that entrenches certain leanings of the court for too long. You know, maybe not even 
18 years, maybe even nine years. I don't know. Uh, and I think maybe we need a few more justices just because we're a big ass country. And I think we need more deliberation on certain ideas. Uh, and I think, you know, it has to be, it has to be an odd number, I'd say, uh, to have majority decisions, but I think it should be maybe up to 15 justices. I know that's a lot of justices, but again, we're a pretty big country and that doesn't, that makes it so we're just cycling more people in and out. Um, I do think, you know, uh, based on what I know about history and how the government works, I think the Supreme Court should be able to decide whether rules are constitutional or not to be a check on the federal government. And I definitely think uh, it should be in terms of keeping checks on the federal government more than uh, expanding its decisions. The Supreme Court has made some pretty poor decisions, especially when it comes to being able to um, prosecute police officers of misconduct and potential civil rights violations. Um, I'm not sure exactly the various different cases, but I know through a lot of bad policymaking and through a lot, of, a lot of bad decisions, they've enabled the cops basically get away with murder. So I would rather they appoint a constitutionalist that wants to put checks on the government's power, especially that of the law enforcement variety. Um, that's about all I have to say uh, for that, but I would like to learn more and I would like to perhaps uh, understand more about what was the Supreme Court's job before the judicial review uh, um, case of the Marbury versus Madison. Um, if you guys could enlighten me, that'd be great. And I'd like to learn more. All right, we will tackle that during the discussion section. I'll be sure to include it. Uh, so before we do our quick first and only ad break, uh, we're, we're going to have a fake ad break first, because uh, I know folks here have some, some shameless plugs to get in. Uh, firstly, make, make sure I don't forget, you're going to be hearing some music throughout this episode. You already heard some in the beginning. You'll probably hear a little bit more after the ad break. That is courtesy of Mr. Atomic, who has let us use their music. So thank you to them for that local band here. Be sure to check them out. Their info is in the description of the podcast you were listening to. Phil, I know you got another podcast. Want to tell us about it? Yeah, I'd like to plug my podcast. It's called Climate's Fix Podcast. It's for my pro-nuclear environmental organization called Americans in Nuclear Energy. And I'm also on this uh, podcast called Mindwave Podcast, which talks about science, humanism, uh, and culture, and other funny things so uh please check it out thank you all right we're going to on our first ad break daddy business tell the people what to buy all right so chloe made fun of me for my last introduction so this time Welcome back to Conflict Theory. This is a podcast. Thank you for continuing to listen after the ad break. Is, is that a more appropriate tone, Chloe? I'm Vin Scully, and that's the way it was. 
Yeah, I'm going. I'm going for that public radio vibe now. That is. That's where it's at. So, radio is a medium that's alive and thriving and only growing. So that's a good time to get into that business. I I, I sense a hint of sarcasm. No, we're just on a podcast talking about it, so it must be true. I like the radio still. <laughs> every once in a while, my XM radio works, and I don't know why, because I don't pay for it. Just every once in a while, it turns on, and it's, it's exciting. The, it was, the debates were on it. I got to hear the debates on XM radio. That seems like a good listening experience, being trapped in the car with two presidential candidates. I think that's one of the reasons that I thought Trump won too, because Biden's <laughs> Biden's camera work, like after the looking at the clips later, was really good. I think it might be one of those debates where the TV and the radio audiences believe different. It's possible. Well, when you have to trust what's on TV, that can only be good for democracy. I don't know how to respond to that. All right. Perhaps with a clever segue into our topic about the yeah. Supreme Court. Speaking of television. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I'm going to link it. I'm going to link it. Citizens United. Yeah, but I got nothing to say about that. Let me start with a question to Brandy, though. So, Brandy, I, I wanted to put this towards you. Because uh, I in just totally missed it. In my introduction, I didn't mention, like, one of the biggest issues about the Supreme Court and that it is a lifetime appointment. Uh, yeah. Like, that's, that's big. It is. It is big. Uh, and Philip suggested adding or making a age limit to it. Like you can't do it if you're, you can only be on it until you're 80 years old. I wanted to know, did you, what do you think of that proposal? I mean, that could be good, but I think that could essentially be solved by term limits on its own. Someone who's 75 is less likely to be picked for an 18-year running position than someone who is, say, 50. So I think it could clear itself up with both of those. That is true. I mean, it's a little morbid anyway, right? Like this idea that we're waiting on someone just to die so we have the opportunity to replace them. There's not really an equivalent like appointment anywhere in the US government. Like there's nowhere else where it's a lifetime appointment. Even in the military, you have like yearly reviews. Um, the only equivalent law is the one that says you can't serve in the Senate or House until you are a certain age. There's actually a limit on youth as opposed to a limit on age. Uh, don't really know why that's the case other than we generally hate kids and they have less political capital due to accumulated wealth under capitalism. So I don't know things. And this isn't like super important, but Chloe, I'll put it to you in general. Like, just are you, would you say like we shouldn't have any age restrictions on political office or should we cut it off at both ends or is the squo so in status theory, quo fine? The, the reason for both rules is in theory the same, right? You don't want children in the Senate because they don't, aren't perceived to have the mental faculty to be able to make decisions that are responsible the way a republic needs. Similarly, the idea of proposing an age limit upwards on the Supreme Court is because once you reach a certain age, there is medical risk to you having, again, the faculty to be able to make decisions in like a cognitive way that is in the public good. It's the same rule, just in two different directions, right? It's that if you can't think, if you can't make decisions, if you don't have the executive function of the brain, to the way that we want, then you shouldn't be serving. I don't think it's a terrible rule. I think, for example, um, I think that it's arbitrary to a certain degree 
because whereas you might say that 75 is too old, I would say 60 is probably too old. Um, or as where I might say that I, th I would be comfortable with certain 18 year olds holding office, I don't think other people would, right? So it really is much like a lot of the Supreme Court, the question of who is instituting the rule largely informs what the rule is trying to do more so than any kind of like objective feeling of good for the Supreme Court as an institution. Okay, just age limits. I, I, I see that debate come up across like political branches every once in a while and I hadn't thought of it for the Supreme Court. So I thought it might be worth looking at a little bit. Anyone else have something on that? Maybe it comes to my frustration that we keep choosing you know, uh, senior citizens to be nominees for president. That's kind of getting, getting nuts. Um, they could be as young as 35. What are we doing here? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> well, and my idea is uh, just power corrupts over time. So why should someone get a lifetime appointment for something? They should, you know, be able to force to give it up. I don't, I think we should you know, I, I I don't think we should trust people that have been in, you know, Congress even for, you know, too many election cycles if they're in the House. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I, just my opinion. I think the more interesting question is like, I feel like you get the answer to should there be a term limit or should there be an age limit based on what should the thing do, right? Like if Congress is meant to be representative, then does having only, you know, 70 plus year old nominees make it broken? Well, probably because most Americans aren't 70 years plus, right? So if the question is, what should the Supreme Court be? Like, should it be something that is meant to be reflective of the general demographics of the U.S.? Clearly not. As Paul said, the vast majority of Supreme Court justices have been white men, which are, you know, not representative of the vast majority of Americans, right? Like there's a full half majority gender that's not even being represented. There have been only one Latino uh, American who served on the Supreme Court. It's not representative of that demographic. So, I mean, I think that if we're saying the Supreme Court is supposed to be representative, then yeah, it's obviously failed, but it failed kind of by design and limiting the age or the term limit gives you more opportunities. But as past indicators have shown, there's no particular reason to suspect that'll change, right? I mean, I think to say, oh, just because it was historically white and male, that means, you know, it's, you know, I think we are moving more towards a inclusive society. So I don't think that should necessarily, the idea should be to uh, get some that's the most qualified and not based on immutable characteristics. But I can understand frustration of people, but progress happens slowly. And I think the more we get on as society, the, uh, the more, diverse and multi-racial and multi-gendered uh, Supreme Court will have. So I just wanted to kind of push back on that a little bit, but um, I think that will change. Um, uh, but I think it should be more people that represent the will of the people, not, you know, their gender, or the color of their skin. That's just my opinion. I mean, if we're asking for the most qualified representatives, we're clearly not getting that. Amy Coney Barrett, she was appointed in 2017 to her first federal courtship. Like she has what? A combined three years of experience. They chose her because she's a Catholic who wants to abolish Roe v. Wade and Oberfell. And that's the values that they seek, right? Like it's a lot about who's choosing the candidate. And I don't see any reason why people in the future are going to choose more qualified candidate when it seem, candidates when it seems like the 
political sphere is more interested in choosing candidates who align with your values than based on their qualifications. I want to come choose? back to that in just a minute. We like put a pin in that real quick because I had one more question that related to age. Uh, so I want to put age to bed. And I'm going to direct this one towards Brandy. The you you were talking you were the first person to really introduce like the idea of it, of having term limits on the Supreme Court in this discussion. Mm -hmm. And what and Philip just said like power uh, corrupts over time. But I I almost I want to know what you think about like the alternative point because the reason we made it a lifetime appointment was to combat corruption was so that they wouldn't be like all super pro business and then get out and get a uh, a swanky lobbying job. Like if they're on the court for life, that means that'll be their life jobs. They're not trying to get a job. They're not making decisions on a job to please people afterwards. They're not, they don't have to worry about political pressure of, uh, and like getting political donations ever. Cause if they leave that, leave that, they might go for another job in politics or something like that. Like they're completely independent with a lifetime appointment. What do you think of that? Um, well, I think that that might have worked back in a time when life expectancy wasn't near 80. Um, I also think that it, it, I could see where that would make sense um, in the actual proposal for the 18-year term limit. Um, it's the only actual proposal that I saw that actually existed. Um, but they said that someone would still be with lifetime tenure, but their tenure would be in lower courts, appeals courts, and such and such like that. Anyone else I mean, on if, that one? Yeah. If the idea was to make them independent of, of political partisanship and self-motivated, like, good job. Sure didn't work, right? Like, we can, I think we can objectively say that the Supreme Court is an incredibly politicized institution. Like I said, Amy Coney Barrett was clearly nominated for very partisan reasons. We can look at the confirmation hearing of Brett Kavanaugh, another person who had about 18, if not 30 justices ahead of him, more qualified, more likely candidates, but was one of the president's friends, part of his inner circle, had the hearing pushed through despite major concerns that the mass, vast majority of the American people said, it was 72%, said that he should not be a Supreme Court justice after the um, credible allegations of sexual assault were brought against him and his generally unhinged demeanor in his Senate confirmation hearing. 72% of Americans said he should not be our Supreme Court justice and they voted him through anyway. So clearly partisan motivation, if getting that out of the Supreme Court was the goal of lifetime appointments, it's objectively a failure. We should move on. Yeah. Okay, which does bring me back to the representation that we were talking about earlier. Because uh, Phil, you just said that, well, over time things get better. And like, things get different. I think we can all agree things get different. But as Chloe just brought up, we now have two of them with credible sexual assault allegations. Yeah, that's no longer all Catholics, but now it's seven, or not all Protestants, but now it's seven Catholics and two Jewish people with zero Protestants, or six, seven after, uh, after Amy gets in. Uh, but why, what makes you so optimistic that it will get better, Phil? Just because I think as a society, we've really learned from some mistakes that we've made in the past. If we keep up with the more pro-enlightenment values, uh, things tend to get better over time. And we've seen that with pretty much every 
uh, measure of human prosperity around the globe. Yeah, uh, you know, I quote Steven Pinker, who's often hated by a lot of intellectuals, um, who uh, goes through the data that shows that, you know, places, you know, I think get get less bigoted over time because people learn to cooperate. Um, and I, you know, just because one president made some bad Supreme Court picks doesn't mean that the whole thing's like trash. I think eventually we'll have a better president that can pick some better people to put on it. And uh, someone, for example, I'd say did did well was uh, Barack Obama. Um, maybe we could get another president like him. Uh, but I mean, who's to say that things are just going to stay like super static and super like, you know, white and male. I, I just don't, I just don't believe that. And I think we need to kind of move past the, the, the identity, uh, the racial or sexual identity of people, uh, as a, like as a, as a marker for anything like that should be irrelevant in my opinion. I mean, it, it should be, but we continue to legislate it, right? Like Oberfell v. Hodges, which I mentioned earlier in 2015, was the first was the first time the Supreme Court ever decided to include uh, gay individuals as being afforded uh, due process under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. That's in like 2015. We certainly don't have any gay LGBTQIA people on the Supreme Court, at least not that we know of. No one who's outwardly presenting that opinion. I mean, if if you if you want to say that we need to divorce the identity of these people from what their decision making is, then they probably shouldn't be making decisions, one, based on their identity. As we said, Amy Coney Barrett is saying she's going to let her Catholicism guide her decision making. So yeah. that's her identity directly making the decisions, right? And B, they probably shouldn't be making laws about what identities are valid or not. Like the Dred Scott case set civil rights back hundreds of years. It's one of the more heinous decisions that any court worldwide has ever made. So, I mean, if they're talking about these issues, if we give them that power, then we probably should be concerned about who they are, right? Sure. I mean, we can complain, but the rules are set up that the president who's, or the administration nominates the Supreme Court and then the, you know, that goes through the, like, I think the House and the Senate to approve. I mean, it's not going to, folks, it's not a perfect system uh, having a representative government and checks and balances. We're going to fuck up a lot, but I think over time we're going to fuck up less. People, I, I think that's a better way to look at how things get better in, you know, more democratic societies over time is you you learn to fuck up less. Uh, and I I don't think, you know, it took it took time for us to, you know, see the rights of gay individuals to get married. And uh, we finally saw them and it might take a few generations before we get maybe a uh, LGBT person on the bench and I you know but uh, progress is slow it's not going to be overnight and I don't think we should you know give up and say you know it should be like abolished right now so um, and I understand there have been bad Supreme Court decisions so uh, that's kind of where I stand on that. I, I mean, if, 
I, I agree that progress moves slowly, but it doesn't move inevitably. There's nothing saying that progress has to happen. Like, like I mentioned in my soapbox, Justices Thomas and Alito, who are two major figures on the Supreme Court, have suggested that they believe it's time to overturn Oberfell v. Hodges and once again illegalize the right of gay Americans to be married. And Amy Coney Barrett has in the past written also in support of that. So the way that the Supreme Court is currently being politically stacked, we're actually anti-progress. You mentioned you liked uh, Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominations, but he also nominated Merrick Garland, who was never appointed because the Senate decided ultimately to play politics with the institution. Instead of letting it be a check and balance, they unchecked that balance, right? They unbalanced it. They decided instead, we're going to wait until after the election and let our guy put a person in. And then are refusing now with Amy Coney Barrett, the same exact rule, the precedent they set for this, this election. I'm not excusing bad politics and people that make the wrong decisions. But look, for example, when it comes to, uh, you know, undoing the right of gay people to get married, I think that would cause too much civil unrest. And I think uh, like, and it would cause too much damage to, like, it just caused a lot of problems the same way we, the problems that were caused when we pro prohibited alcohol, uh, hold, stuff like that. Hold on on that again, because that's the, the next question, round of questions I want to get into. But if we're about ready to move on from the representation, I, if it's all right, I, I was going to ask maybe more of a personal question, maybe first to Brandy and Chloe, if you would like to chime in too. Uh, Brandy, I, like, I don't know, like everyone who's ever been on the Supreme Court with the exception of four people have kind of looked like me, but I want to know like your thoughts, like was RGB kind of like, did you ever look up to her at all? Or like any of the women on the Supreme Court, did that mean something to you? I mean, honestly, no, um, the Supreme Court is not, uh, before I really cared more about politics i've cared about politics in my life but supreme court was like bottom of the list of what i cared about politics i um did not know much about it before i researched it for this episode so no chloe kind of same question do you, do you i mean yeah so as a trans woman look like i don't think that i ever expect there to be a lot of trans people in our government period because we're a pretty firm minority right like it's a representative democracy and not everyone looks like me that's fine I think it's more about the laws that they're passing right like it's not going to be I don't look up to RGB like I, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg action figures that Barnes and Noble sells I'm not 100% certain who's getting behind that I don't think that these people need to be idolized but I do care that they did pass the decision they did in the Oberfell case right that was very important to me the policy matters and right now the policy is moving in the wrong direction Okay, so we'll move on to policy now. And this puts me to you first again, Chloe. And in, in your soapbox, you complained a lot about, like, essentially legislation from the bench. This is something similar to what conservatives are actually usually very upset about. Mm, we'll disagree but, on that. Okay. Uh, but like a lot of the things that we've gotten from the too strong Supreme Court is gay rights, is like we have, we get Miranda rights, we get an attorney, we got gay rights out of, I said that, we uh, ended discrimination both for, uh, both by race and for women. That was RBG's like big thing. So, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, so so this, this is going to sound like a tangent, but bear with me for a minute. 
So there's this famous argument that Steven Crowder, who's a conservative pundit, likes to make about climate change, where he shows this graph that suggests that the glaciers are actually becoming more firm, that they're gaining water. And he uses this as proof that climate change is a hoax, and in fact, that global warming is receding, not progressing. The reason this is intellectually dishonest is because if you take that section of graph he uses as proof in his argument and expand it past the two months his graph is showing to five years, you will see that the graph dips and raises and dips and raises with a general trend towards downward. That kind of perspective is important. So when we say that the Supreme Court has made these serious landmark decisions like upholding the Affordable Care Act, like Oberfell, I think it's important that we don't take it as a 10-year chunk and instead look at the legacy because Oberfell is a decision that has now had five years of being the law of the land and is looking like it's in danger. Dred Scott was the law of the land for almost a hundred years. So the decisions end up going both ways because of how supremely powerful the institution is. And I think that when we're talking about things like a lifetime appointment, we need to recognize that even though it can be in some ways a bastion for like what we might define as good, even if my team wins from the power of the institution, that doesn't mean the institution is less dangerous or less powerful. It just means that that particular, you know, 10 year chunk or whatever cross section we're taking went well for us. There are still all the harms that we were talking about, what, which causes, you know, violence, which causes massive oppression. Like all of those harms still exist. We just didn't get them that round. And I think that if we look at the Supreme Court as a whole since Marbury versus Madison in 1803, there's a lot more decisions that I think we would question whether they should be handed down by nine old white people versus decisions that we think should be handed down by, through a more representative and democratic structure. Now, but Philip brought up this point too. And obviously, like, there have been bad decisions. Like, Dred Scott was not only a bad decision, but, like, a black mark on this country forever. Like, we'll never truly recover from, like, That's that decision. That's why I'm still decision. talking about it. Like, it's worth, it's, it's worth mentioning, even though it's really old. But Brown versus Board, that not only passed, that was unanimously passed by the Supreme Court. And engage with the idea that Philip sort of alluded to, that rights are sticky. Like, now that gay people have the right to get married, that that is very unlikely to go away. Because like, once people get rights, it's harder to go backwards from that. I don't think that's necessarily true. So I would use Roe v. Wade as an example of this. That's something that's been the law of the land and has yet to be overturned. Though again, Amy Coney Barrett is looking to do so. Uh, the idea that the long mark of progress is allowing that kind of change is dubious because you need people to be able to enforce that change and you need the institutions that create it to stand by it. So in uh, Texas and Alabama, there have been state court decisions that have been increasingly ruling that restrictions on places to access abortion, the specific thing that Roe v. Wade allowed, uh, can be limited to one per county, one per state, one per every three state. The restrictions get tighter and tighter and tighter. You can't have an abortion after a certain number of months. You can't have an abortion under fewer months. You can't have an abortion if you have any kind of pre-existing condition like asthma, despite there being no medical link between asthma and complications from having an abortion. The forces that are not for progress will always try to bring these challenges. Now, in theory, the system is designed so that once we have the protection in place, once in 1973 Roe v. Wade passes, those kinds of minor attempts by lower courts to undermine it can be brought up to the Supreme Court and rejected. But that assumes that the Supreme Court still favors it. Our current conservative majority Supreme Court has declined 
in 80 different cases that have been brought up to review exactly these challenges, these challenges for Roe v. Wade, they have declined to defend it because presumably the conservative majority knows that they don't quite have the ability to overturn it yet. But once Amy Coney Barrett is there, they can then make the calculated decision to now review the cases, not because the cases are different, but because they believe they have the votes to overturn. In the meantime, they've allowed that progress to move backwards. It's not moving forwards in places like Texas. It's not moving forward in places like Georgia and Alabama. It is harder to get an abortion there now than it was in the 90s, than it was in the 80s. And that's problematic. There's always civil disobedience if a bad law is passed. Let's okay, more about that. It. What, what do you mean there's always civil disobedience? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if, if, if a law is, if they overturned Roe v. Wade or some other law, like, there can always be people that just, just don't listen to the law. Like, I mean, you can, like, that brings a little bit of, like, anarchy into things, but I think it is your, it is a lawful duty for you to disobey unjust laws. I think MLK said that. Let, let me back you up a little bit here, Phil, but from, from a slightly different angle. And, and I'll put this towards Chloe, because you and Chloe are kind of opposites. I guess sort of Brandy, too, talking about court packing. Like, abolition and court packing kind of feel like opposites to me. But... What not civil disobedience, but what about the idea of like amendments to fight for these rights again? Is a bad Supreme Court really that dangerous when we do have amendments in a in our back pocket? That's for you, Chloe. You mean by amendments to the Constitution? Like yeah. we could well, yes, because amendments to the Constitution are almost impossible to pass. There's been an amendment to the Constitution basically floating now for the last eighty years. It was doing something very simple. It was attempting to amend the Electoral College to abolish faithless electors. It's passed 16 over 80 years. Like that kind of progress is slower than I think even Phil wants, right? I, I think that the reality of the Supreme Court is that it can make immediate decisions that are powerfully impactful now. And because it is the high court of the land, it is the backstop that appeals to a law would go. It means they get to enforce their own decision. They're a closed loop of power. The Senate can override them by impeaching Supreme Court justices or by making laws that overrule them. But if they make laws that overrule them, the Supreme Court justices can then review those laws and consider them unconstitutional. That's the whole point of the judicial review power. If they move to impeach a Supreme Court justice, which has happened once and they did not have the votes to convict, so they ended up staying on their seat in the Supreme Court, then I suppose in a radical new world that we've never seen where that does happen, it would probably then just be on the president to appoint a replacement. And as we've established, these are incredibly partisan terms. So you have the same issue just again in like six months. I just think you have to, you have to follow the, the, the way things are set out to have some sort of semblance of a cohesive society. I mean, you can't just say, oh, we're going to just abolish it. I don't think that that's, you know, I mean, just because they've made some, awful decisions in the past i not i'm not gonna think... i i don't want to i don't want to like demonize you here phil but like slavery was institution in this country for hundreds of years and we just said to abolish that right like clearly we can abolish entire institutions if we deem them unjust i mean if you again like you say if you find a way to like write a constitutional amendment that says we are going to disband the like you know the third branch of the federal government i think that would be pretty difficult to do um I I do think though we we need some sort of stopgap to you know constitutional scholars that say whether something's constitutional or not because otherwise you know I think 
the federal government can uh, end up having too much power. Philip, you, you, you did this uh, where you're, you're advocating for both civil disobedience as a solution, but also arguing that abolishing the Supreme Court is too radical. Like these, these seem to be like, you seem to be condemning like two good things or endorsing two bad things. I don't know. I, I, I again, I think, you know, they, they sound like they're counterintuitive, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm just saying like, I, I guess it comes down to, to faith in the system. If something's truly unjust, there are ways you can do it legally and there's a ways you can do it socially. And if enough people just don't obey orders, then they potentially would be another but case that comes that, along. Isn't that illegal though? It, it, not obeying yes, orders, it, that's yes, illegal. It is, it is. Uh, you risk going to jail for civil disobedience. That's always so, so the is, case. It, does the system have protections in place that I can follow legally and civilly to amend it or not? Do I have to act outside the system? I, I feel like I'm getting both. I mean, I, I guess I'm saying if a Supreme Court decision is so bad, such as reversing Roe v. Wade, you know, and people just, just like, okay, well, you know, they said it was unconstitutional before. We're going to, you know, just continue on with it. You know, I think there, there is a semblance of, you know, people like, you know, uh, the, the governments are at the beck and call of the people. And if, you know, they don't do the right thing in certain other ways, you know, then desperate times call for des desperate measures. But I, okay. I, I, I don't think Roe v. Wade's in jeopardy. And I know it sounds crazy, but I don't think it's going to be re- I don't think it's going to be made illegal. Okay, I want to move on a little bit. And the next, I got a short, quick question for you, Chloe, uh, but it's so that Brandy can respond to it. Sure. So you, you, you're kind of quick with your abolishing of the Supreme Court plan. I just wanted what little bit more, like what does abolishing the Supreme Court look like? A little bit more. So, Brandy so I think it's specifically a, abolishing judicial review, right? Like that's the, the thing that makes the Supreme Court different from Supreme Courts in places like Canada, the UK, really anywhere else that we would consider to be like Western liberal democracies. I, we, can debate, we can debate whether that term means anything anymore. But countries that we think function more or less like the United States, but they don't give their courts the power to basically enact and dictate policy for tens of years, right? So I think that when we're talking about abolishing the Supreme Court, we're not abolishing having a court that is supreme among the federal court system. I think what we're talking about is specifically abolishing the ability for the Supreme Court to one, be a lifetime appointment that is set by the president and two, be a institution that has that power of judicial review to ultimately determine whether a law sticks or not. I, I Can I agree. ask a question? Can I just ask a question? Uh, I, I just need to learn more about judicial review. So basically the judicial review said the, the Supreme Court has the potential, uh, the ability to strike down a law that they deem unconstitutional, right? Uh, what, what was the Supreme Court before that? And what do the Supreme Courts look like in other countries? And, 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 and if they don't have that power, what power do they have? Curious. So say, for example, that you've been convicted of a traffic ticket, a ridiculous example, but I think we all kind of know what that looks like, right? You appeal that decision, it goes to a higher level of court. Again, you are not given a decision that you believe is in line with like your uh, rights. You believe the court was unfair. Maybe you believe the jury was stacked and had, for example, an all black jury. You are a white individual. You feel as if there might have been racial bias among the jury. 
you want to appeal the decision. You have to go to a higher court. They find you a different jury. Your lawyers problematize that jury as well. After that decision is made, you appeal up higher. The highest court that you appeal to is the Supreme Court. Right. That's true for most Western liberal democracies. Got it. The difference between our court and theirs is that their decision in that individual case is often one, locked under seal due to privilege of that individual. It's not considered to be a public document. Um, two, it will often be a decision that is able to inform case law. For example, they would say that you have to have a representative and diverse jury. That is within the legal system, something that the Supreme Court of something like Canada might be able to issue. However, what other countries' courts cannot do is say, oh, well, you were convicted under a law that says you cannot go 80 and a 35. The idea of an 80 and a 35 is not in keeping with the Constitution. Therefore, in addition to saying you are innocent, we also will never again allow anyone to get a ticket for an 80 and a 35. That step to not only are you in this individual court case being ruled on, but in fact, this is now the policy of the land. That is judicial review. So without judicial review, it's more, it's just less, just less of a, it's, it's, it's less of an all or nothing thing. The difference between reviewing cases and reviewing laws. Are you reviewing the individual circumstance to determine if it was justly applied or are you reviewing the rules by which the actual system works in order to change them and make new policy? So from what I understood, judicial review was actually uh, the court being able to overturn the laws and congressional decisions, not necessarily just the fact that what they said was laws. Am I wrong there? They're essentially the same thing, right? Because if you overturn a rule that it, right, the U.S. government functions so that the legislative branch creates legislation that creates what the law is. So if you overturn that law as being unconstitutional, you have changed what the law is, i.e. what they say has then become law. Sure. It's maybe a different sure. way to frame it. Like I might be using some linguistics that aren't exactly connecting with you, but I think we're saying the same thing. I think I that st makes sense. I, I'm still very confused, but I'll do some research on this because uh, uh, maybe if we want to look more like other countries, we should. Okay, so I have one more question. It was going to be two, but I'll, I'll morph it into one for the sake of time. Just one last sort of subject I wanted to uh, dabble into, and we'll start with uh, <clears throat> Phil. So the Supreme Court is like weirdly sort of mythologized in the United States. Maybe it is everywhere, but like I said at the beginning, like it's a very well-respected branch of government. It usually has higher approval ratings than the other two branches. And like, they're the only ones who can go to work every day in their pajamas and not get criticized for that. Like the high regard we have for the Supreme Court and just judges in general, is, is that something that you would think might need to change, Phil? Uh, the mythology behind it. Yeah. Like this above it all. Uh, yeah. Um, kind of. Yeah. And I think a way to do that is to cycle people out, you know, more frequently and maybe have a, you know, a larger increase of like number of people just so we have more voices being heard for, you know, like being cycled in and out. And I, I, I think, yeah, I think we should be skeptical of the absolute power of all institutions. So uh, yeah, I, I think we should maybe have a few more checks on just how permanent, you know, the the uh, the appointments are to the Supreme Court. And uh, again, I I'm still learning stuff here. I I still 
uh, I, I really need to look into this judicial review thing and uh, see if maybe we should re, re look into that. So I'd like to thank Chloe for uh, bringing that up. Okay, and I, I will put this question to Chloe too, because like of all the bad things you say the Supreme Court does, like people still like them. Well, no, people still like the institution. It has high institutional approval ratings, meaning they generally appreciate the decisions it has made. That's largely due to two factors. One, the decisions that get the most publicity are ones that are major landmark achievements. This is actually true of the presidency too. The president gets a bump. The president usually will have approval ratings dictated by how well the economy does, even though the executive branch does nothing to control the economy besides appearances and the way that markets react to them, right? Like the legislative branch does a lot more, but they aren't governed by that. Similarly, the Supreme Court, when, for example, Oberfell passed, Justice Thomas, despite being a dissenting opinion, got a huge bump among liberals, especially gay liberals, because people only see the flashiest part, right? Like there's a degree of an education gap here where some individuals just don't know what the Supreme Court does, but things are generally okay in their life, so they have a higher approval rating. As the general happiness of Americans has gone down, which it has generally during the Trump administration, more Americans now say they are pessimistic about the next 15 years than they did before. So too has the Supreme Court's general approval ratings gone down, especially with the confirmation of Brent Kavanaugh, a member, of, a, an individual justice, when you poll for him, as opposed to the Supreme Court institution, has massive negatives. Less than 12% of people approve of his individual performance. So, I mean, this is a trend. It's not something that's always going to be true. It's been historically true, but I think that there are a lot of factors for that beyond the fact that, like, they are doing a good job. It's maybe more that they have gotten a free pass, and as we're bringing them more into the spotlight, people are covering them in, with mud the same way every other politician is, and that's how their approval is going to end up trending. All right. Brandy, did you want the last word on this one? Uh, sure. I was going to real quick answer the question you asked me earlier. Um, I agree and disagree with Chloe. Um, I think that someone should do judicial review. I do not necessarily think it should be a part of the court. Um, the abolishment per se, in my opinion, does not necessarily have to be a complete and total abolishment of the idea, more like of a reforming. Um, but as far as that goes, I really think that just something needs to change about the Supreme Court. At this point, we're looking at the oldest person on the Supreme Court now is uh, been on the Supreme Court for going on almost 30 years. So uh, they've been there October 23rd, 1991. And um, that is just ridiculous to me. I don't think someone should be able to have that much power over that much of their lives and be able to, you know, wait until they have other people who agree with them to do what they've been waiting to do their whole life. And I think something should change as along those aspects at least if not bigger changes all right and this has been an episode of conflict theory i'm gonna say it that way because you didn't like it the other way either chloe i thank you all very much for listening please check out the description for links to other places to find us my band uh mr atomic phil's con uh podcast it's been a hoop uh I'm really hoping that our next episode will be on the new Machine Gun Kelly album because this is important and no one seems to understand how important this album is. Uh, but we'll he also see opened I a coffee shop. Oh, that's cool. Didn't know. I know. See, right? there's, there's a lot to talk about. Let's see if I, we can convince <laughs> the rest of the uh, the rest of the cast to to get on board with this. But it might be something different. Thank you very much for listening. Conflict Theory, signing out.